Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hello, everybody, and happy post-Turkey Day. I am hoping that everybody enjoyed something scrum diddlyumptious. I did torture my children and my husband, and they did eat green bean casserole, but it's mommy's favorite, so huzzah, everybody's going to eat it. (laughs) But today's guest just had a birthday, so we have a belated happy birthday to none other than, and Inez, you're going to have to make sure I pronounce this correct, Inez Esparza? Esparza. Esparza. Semi-close, yes. She is a certified SLPA as well as a certified medical translator. And truth be told, I had no idea that that level of certification for translation existed until we met in New Orleans. And not at ASHA last week or like two weeks ago, but in New Orleans at LISHA, Louisiana Speech Hearing Association, back in... May with Kristen, Aaron, and with Rocky. Also, Aaron said to tell you hi. She was flying, otherwise she would have joined us, but she is literally so on a plane. <laughs> she was like, you could do it with the mess. Tell her I said hi. 
But, you know, as PFD people kind of congregate, we were all hanging out and having lunch together. And Inez is amazing and vivacious and her soul is as beautiful as she is. So I asked her to come on and talk to us about her walk and her journey and why we need to engage in interprofessional education to understand how to collaborate best with individuals who translate. So Inez, thank you so much for coming on. Please take us from the beginning. What made you want to be an SLP and how did you land in New Orleans? (laughs) Oh, it's been a crazy ride. Interpreting and translating. Interpreting is the verbal communication and translating is the written format. Bloody hell, I didn't even know that. Yes, okay. (laughs) Yay, I already learned. Okay, so you're a certified medical interpreter then? Yes. Yes, okay, got it. My journey started in 1998 when I was eight years old. Um, It was through advocacy. I was chosen to speak in front of the Board of Education in Los Angeles for dual language programs. So I gave a speech in English and Spanish on keeping those programs because I was obviously an example of how effective they were. Long story short, they got rid of them and over 10 years later, got them reinstated because, you know, it's been proven that they are effective for children like me. Along my path, I landed at an orthopedic surgeon's office where there was a lot of Spanish-speaking patients. And I got the opportunity from my employer to earn a certification because it was necessary in California in order to interpret. And so I just kind of landed on that. And I loved it. I used my foundational knowledge in in two languages, and just expanded on that with the medical component, medical terminology, and learned it in English and Spanish and earned my certification. Life brought me to Louisiana about six years ago. I just was trying to be closer to family, and there had not been anybody here to interpret. Like you said, nobody knew about a medical certification So I was hired through our state's early intervention program as an interpreter. That was my first introduction to the field of speech language pathology, because I not only got the chance to interpret for, you know, intakes or evaluations, but I was also coming along to every single session because in early intervention, it's very important to keep the home language. And as I learned more about it, I saw the need. And at first I said, how am I going to help beyond interpreting? And at this point I had earned a bachelor's degree in business administration. I thought I have one degree. Yay. That's it. But I said, I have to do more. I can do more than just interpret? What if I just become an assistant? That was my goal. So I went back to school, earned a second bachelor's degree, and then earned my assistant license. But there was still something in me. By that point, I had more experience interpreting for evaluations and things like that. And I said, I can do more. I can do more than just assist. And I need to. I need to because my community needs me. And so now here I am in my second year of grad school. That's amazing. And you only have two semesters left. And y'all, not only was it just her birthday, but this past semester, I'm going to toot her horn. She finished with a 4.0 for the term. And you're a mom. And you're doing all of these things. And In case nobody has told you how amazing you are, you are amazing and you are inspirational. And just being around you, you just have this warmth that was just calming and hopeful. And when we had lunch together and I walked away, I was like, ah, like refreshed. So 
You have a great calling ahead of you, ma'am. Thank you. Okay. So, but that certified SLPA, that's new. I mean, you just got that one as well. And I'm kind of curious, was that a difficult application for that certification? For ASHA, there are certain requirements to follow, but it's similar to my state's guidelines, which is 100 practicum hours and an application and an exam. So there weren't many extra steps that I had to take, but it depends on your state. And I guess I was a test dummy because I was one of the first. Like you said, it's new. So... I applied as soon as it opened up. I have to wonder, have you used your interpretation skills in your graduate practicums? Yes, a lot. (laughs) Y'all, you couldn't see it. That was like a definitive head nod of like, oh yeah. (laughs) In my clinical experiences, I feel like my first CE was amazing. Shout out to Morgan. She was just as passionate about learning from me than what I could learn from her. And whenever we did have Hispanic children, bilingual children, or monolingual Spanish-speaking children, she kind of just let me do it and then took notes. So I've had to be the teacher while I'm learning myself. That's a good clinical soup. That's awesome. Yes. Okay. So folks, if you're listening, I know I've said it like a thousand times before, pay it forward and grow. Become a clinical supervisor as soon as you can. You have knowledge and students challenge you and ask you questions. It makes you grow as a clinician as well. So reach out to your local college or university and sign up for clinical supervision. Huzzah. You do have to take a two hour credit class. Make sure you get that too. (laughs) Okay. All right. So we have a litany of questions to go through and Inez wrote the most beautifully detailed outline for today. And I loved it because like sometimes when it's Aaron and I, we have a script and then we go off bar, but like this was so straightforward. I was like, oh my God, I had no idea that all of this was involved, but take me from the beginning as to why we should be using a certified or qualified interpreter instead of an individual who happens to be bilingual. Well, first interpreters who are certified or qualified have specialized training. So they will know terminology beyond conversational interpretation. So this is especially important in the medical setting when using a medical interpreter. I don't know about you, Michelle, but I'm educated. I'm in the medical field, but sometimes I go to the doctor. I take my children to the doctor They talk to me and it's a whole nother language. No freaking clue the term. Yes. So interpreters have training in that terminology and can tell you in their language. And we also have to follow a code of ethics. That's something tricky when you're using someone who's not trained because you don't know if, you know, they're going to follow HIPAA or if they're bound by HIPAA. Here in South Carolina, our state early intervention system is called BabyNet, and BabyNet will pay for an interpreter. But to my knowledge, I don't know if they have to be certified or licensed. And that stops as soon as the little one turns three. As soon as they're three, the state Medicaid will not pay for an interpreter for the speech therapy. It's just they cut it off there. So that's kind of my experiences were there until three and then it stops. That's similar here in Louisiana, although it shouldn't be. Thank you. Yes. Especially if you follow ADA regulations, people have a right to communicate in their language. And I used to push back a lot on that. I feel like some locations try to follow those guidelines, but there's nobody to do it either. So it's hard. So there's a barrier because we are 
insufficient staffing problems. Yes, that I can see, but it's like the communication bill of rights for individuals with an assistive technology device. I mean, if that's their, yes, 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 yes. Okay. So there's a code of ethics that's adhered to. If you have a certification or a license as an interpreter, are there ongoing CEU requirements as well? With my certification, it's 30 hours every five years. There's another board. I'm not quite sure, but usually around the same, but that I know of, there's two certifying boards. It's kind of like for ASHA where we have to do our 30 every three. Yes. Okay. Well then that's, that's lovely information. And I did have one question when you were talking about like they take the medical terminology classes. Is it geared towards like are there classes for different like branches of medicine? I guess that's a nice way of saying that. It's similar to us. We learn it all. And then some people specialize. But when I learned, one class was dedicated to ER terminology, then special senses, hematology, psychiatry, the nervous system. So we learned a little bit of everything. And the certification exam is interesting because the first component is all in English and it's on ethics and medical terminology in English and like the meanings and what goes together. Then the second component of the test is the actual interpretation. Oh, no, that's cool. So then my next question is, was this just for the certification or license just for English and Spanish, or are there other languages as well? There are other languages, and I'm going to share a resource with you that has them uh, listed. There are other languages. There is a specialty certification that I know of. The certification doesn't exist in certain languages, But you can get certified on the first component, which is just the English, knowing the ethics, the roles, and the medical terminology. And you can interpret with that for those languages where a certification doesn't exist. But at the very least, you know that this person has been trained to follow, you know, ethics, knows the terminology and things like that. When you were explaining it, the first thing that popped in my head is years and years and years ago, Bear got an inguinal hernia. And I had to learn a whole, I don't have testicles. I don't know the words and the bits and pieces that go down there. (laughs) So like when the doctor was, you know, describing and using these terms and I was just like trying really hard not to blush because I was really uncomfortable and this was all out of, this is very far below the clavicle folks. But like all I could think was, wow, that was really specific anatomy physiology for like little tiny child bits and pieces that are okay I digress (laughs) everything is in working order and they put all the hernia back where it did not need to be so huzzah for the local pediatric urologist but okay all right continue I'm so sorry so in here you talk about the code of ethics and then how this ties into Ash's scope of practice so we are required and when I say we I'm closer to becoming a a we as an SLP. So we are required to use culturally and linguistically appropriate assessment protocols, services, and advocate to promote and facilitate access to communication, which includes, you know, getting past those linguistic barriers and cultural barriers. So that requires us to use an interpreter and use someone that's qualified. My problem is access. Now, truth be told, I haven't worked with an interpreter in about, I think it's been close to two years. And because I left Home Health about two years ago, I was supposed to have had an initial evaluation for a little one in hospice with an interpreter this past Wednesday, but he ended up back in the hospital. So we've postponed until next Wednesday. And in this instance, because the little one is already in hospice care, we have, I'm working on quality of life, pleasure feeding for the family and for the little one. The hospice team already has an interpreter in place. But what I have found in South Carolina, and it's, I mean, you work in Louisiana, I work in South Carolina, there is a lot of implicit and explicit bias and blatant racism here in this area. 
And because of that, I have encountered families where they didn't share that they needed an interpreter until after they got to know me more. And because we had to build trust, right? Like I had to build that relationship so they felt comfortable. It took a minute to find an interpreter. And honestly, the agency that I worked for, the person behind the scenes within billing and admin, they had to find the interpreter. But the interpreter came to me and told me that one of the barriers was the family was afraid I would turn them over to ICE, which I would never do. That was a barrier for them seeking out an interpreter. And then I don't know where to look. So I use that very raw moment of like sheer Michelle panic, but where do we go? I mean, we know what we need to be doing. We need to be seeking out an interpreter. Where's my starting point? Yeah. And your experience is not uncommon. There's so many times when I get to a session and you can see as soon as I say it in Spanish, hola, soy su intérprete, the relief on the mother's face and they just kind of, oh, okay, someone's here to help. So it's not an uncommon experience what you've felt. And yeah, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear for these people. How do I help that? I mean, just like as a human, like how do I help dispel the fear and like, because I know I am a white female and I don't want that to be a barrier. I'm here to help. So what recommendations do you have just in that moment? I think, like you said, build that relationship, build that trust and make it clear that you respect their values, their culture. You're not making assumptions and you're there for anything they need and to provide the care that they need. Nothing else matters. I think as soon as they know that, usually it's that trust begins to build and they open up, which ultimately helps their child or the patient or whoever it is you're helping because there's nothing blocking you. I'm keeping all your notes in my head. Okay. All right. So now go back to where, where do I look? How do I find an interpreter? Help. (laughs) So the first place I would look is the certifying boards that I know of. There is the National Board of Certification for Medical Interpreters. Their website has the registry. The Certification Commission for Healthcare Interpreters has a registry and the registry for interpreters of the deaf. So they are really neat. It's online and you can break it down by state, by city. If they're on the registry, they usually have their contact information. So you contact an interpreter there. Uh, Since these are national certifying boards, usually it's not a problem if you get an interpreter from out of state and they can help you interpret through video or over the phone. Of course, the best is always in person. There's a lot of things that you can't see through a phone or through a video, like gestures or things like that. But I would say the certifying boards should be your first place to look. After that, I would look at interpreting companies. So in person, there are some agencies that send out interpreters in person. There's over-the-phone companies or even video remote companies. Most, I want to say, healthcare facilities if you work for healthcare facilities or schools, have access to an over-the-phone interpreter. So I would go down your line. In-person is the best. Video after that. Worst comes to worst over the phone, but it's better than not having someone at all or having, don't get someone's child to interpret for you. Don't get someone's auntie to interpret for you. That was, to me was when... I finally asked if they could help because I noticed that whatever I was saying, the mom was nodding to during an evaluation. This was years and years and years ago. And the little one had unilateral cleft lip, a cleft to the hard palate. And we were doing the Dr. Brown's pacing one-way valve bottle. And I was trying to ask about because I was worried about, you know, nasal, I mean, obviously nasal regurgitation, but I was worried about like aspiration. And I was trying to ask these questions and the mom just kept nodding and smiling. And 
I was like, she's not getting it, what I'm saying. And I don't know how to say it otherwise. She brought in the older brother who is six. But full circle, I ran into her at the Walmart years later. She knew so much English and she had gone to school and wanted to be an interpreter in like the community doing speech therapy. But she'd gone to the community college and taken a bunch of classes like at the local community college and her church paid for it, which I just thought was like amazing. And she had a baby girl. There was a lot of joy and laughter and ugly tears cried at the Red Bank Walmart. (laughs) But like... (laughs) But I felt very uncomfortable when she brought the bigger brother over. And that's when I was like, if I am not always tactful, I just kind of blurt things out. And so I was just like, do you want me to get an interpreter? Like, how do we, would this help be helpful? Is there a more graceful or gracious or culturally respective way of asking that? I would just ask or first say, I want to make sure that you understand everything I'm saying. And then just ask, would it help you if I tried to find someone to give you this information in Spanish? Usually they will not say no. It's a relief. It's just what I have seen. Most people don't want to ask for help. They don't want to be a burden. But if you offer help, they're more likely to accept it. And don't make assumptions. Don't Even if it looks like they understood and they say yes and they answered, don't assume. Um, A few months ago, I was in a situation where a mom stopped a seizure medication because she received, yes. Oh my gosh, no. Yeah, I sorry. I had a mouthful of water and was just like, wait, for real? Okay. They had received a call from the lab. What they understood on the phone was that the child's levels of the medication was were too high and they should stop the medication. I had my, my spidey senses were going. I said, well, a lab would not call you and tell you to stop a medication. Um, but dad who speaks English, very basic conversationally is what he understood. So I had to stop what I was doing and just help the mom. And this is outside of my scope, but I said, medication, seizures, it's important. I had to make phone calls. I found out who called her and it was not at all what they were told, but the dad thought he understood And we had to, you know, call the doctor, make sure that the child got back on his medication. And some of those you have to like taper up and down on. You can't just cold turkey or it could like trigger worse seizures. Yeah. Is he okay? Is the child okay? He is fine. This was, I want to say almost a year ago. And he is a sweet boy, but it, it, that's the kind of, um, thing that it could lead to if this dad answered and said, oh, okay, yes, I'll do that with his basic English. And they thought they understood, but they didn't. So always offer, even if you think that they understand, just offer, you know, can I get this resource for you in Spanish? Should Would it be better if someone is here to help? Yes. Yes. Oh, that poor child. I'm just thinking of like all of the potential outcomes of like missing that medication. I am. See, the good Lord put you exactly where you were needed in the moment. Yes. Yes. Okay. Mm. Okay. So we have insurance. Okay. But talk to me about insurance. Let's go back to like, we've got our streamline. We've got our, our list of Go to the certifying boards. If you can't get to a certifying board or you don't have one, then we need to reach out um, for a local agency, preferably face-to-face. If that doesn't work, then a video call. And if that doesn't work, then a phone call. And then insurance comes in. Yes. Insurance. Um, When you look in the back of your card, usually there's, if you need assistance, 
call that number. They will set you up um, with an interpreter. I didn't even notice that there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's um, transportation. If you need transportation, if you need interpretation, it's right there. And it's covered. Especially, um, I know in my state, all the Medicaid plans offer interpreting services. So you just have to make a phone call. A lot of the times the patients don't know that. Um, But if you're sitting there with them, help them make the phone call. Yeah. So if you can turn their card over, help them make a phone call, let them know when they need to be scheduled. And it's right there. That's amazing. I I literally never. That's the least. That's the least used resource that I have seen. That was a very humbling moment right there, Inez. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, okay. So um, if you haven't, you need, okay. Once you're done with your C's and you have come to the, I'm, I'm putting this on, on you because I know you would do a phenomenal job on it. You need to get on the Alicia board. You need to volunteer and serve on the board because I could see you just doing phenomenal, wonderful things for advocacy at your state and, and at the federal level. But like when you hit, go through that, you get, um, when you get into the president's positions, you get to meet, um, you get to go to CSAP, which is really cool because it's like all the state association presidents get together. It's like a room full of like the nerdiest people you'll ever meet in your life. And it's like so cool to sit and be a fly on the wall. But I met Faye Murray. So I'm, um, Faye is out. Faye, oh my God, are you Arizona or New Mexico? Where are you from, Faye? Ari- I think she's from Arizona. And she, um, she talks about how when she started, she spoke English and Spanish, but was working on a Navajo reservation. And she's like, I didn't speak Navajo. And I was like, yeah. And so she was the first person that really kind of talked to me about um, how to do an evaluation. And in if you have a monolingual child or a bilingual child in languages that you don't speak, she was like one of my first mentors in that. And for the most part, like I don't do standardized assessments. Like I I typically do the clinical swallow. And if I do do a standardized assessment, it's criterion referenced. So it it's, I'm not doing like a, a self, right. I'm doing the Rosetti. So there's, I say all that because like you and Faye would get along like peanut butter and jelly at the CSAP conferences. So you got to, got to go all the way, do all the things, but talk to us. How do I best, how do we best collaborate with the interpreters to ask those complex, complex past medical history questions to do the evals ethically? I mean, this is always very nerve wracking. Like I got to be honest on my side, I'm, I'm always afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing or cause offense without, without meaning to. The pre-brief session with your interpreter is so important. Just like you wouldn't go into a session or an assessment without any of your materials. Um, you wouldn't want the interpreter to go in there not knowing I've never done a pre-brief in my life. What is a pre-brief? That's when you get with your interpreter and you explain to them what is being assessed. Because there's a difference between um, checking out what what a patient is saying or how they're saying it. So you need to explain to your interpreter. I'm listening for, you know... If they're saying they're oh right, if they're saying they're are right, or I'm listening for language. Do they have certain words or fluency? Is it flowing? If you speak another language, I think sounds sounds are easy. Um, you might be able to hear if a child is saying a sound incorrectly. Sounds usually don't inquire interpretation, but if you're assessing for something else. You really need your interpreter to look out for those things. 
like hypernasality and hyponasality. I rely on that so much in my CSE evals that like, but I wouldn't know that in another language if that sound needed to be produced like hypernasally or yeah. And what I noticed that because I still interpret, um, especially in the school systems, uh, what I noticed that now that I'm getting more knowledge on what we should be looking out for, I my role has kind of changed where I interrupt and I say, hey, well, this was incorrectly based on your assessment, but the child did say a correct word. It was just a lower register, which, you know, can vary on um, where they're from, the culture they come from. There could be, there are over 11, there are over 11 Spanish words for straw. Are you for real? That's awesome. Which one's your favorite? Well, I'm from Mexico, so it's popote. Okay. But if if your assessment gives you four correct possible correct answers and the child does not say one of those, it could be deemed incorrect. But your interpreter, if they're trained, they would know that there's more than four and you know, should say, Hey, he didn't say one of those four, but said this one, which is correct. So that would be important to for the interpreter to know what you're looking for so that they can interpret and then go beyond that and tell you, you know, not tell you if it's right or wrong, but tell you the possible meanings um, for you to decide. Okay. So for me, when I go, when, okay, this is, I'm, I'm processing all of this as to how I can do better next Wednesday when I'm with this little one. Right. So like, I'm thinking like ITSY scales, like ITSY, um, diet levels and like what's safe and then being culturally respective and knowing that like, say it's a minced and moist. Well, my minced and moist might be, um, I make a really good vegetarian, um, shepherd's pie, but I mean, like we're Irish and I just don't have a gallbladder because we're also Native American and Padawamic and Cherokee. So like I can't put meat in there. So I'll put like lentils, right? But if I'm looking for a minced and moist, I should seek to understand through the pre-brief, pre-brief this is why I don't teach English because I can't even like do our blends, <laughs> but like get her to that. Okay. Okay. I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in a pre-brief, now I can see some people asking, "Is that a billable time?" And I would anticipate no, but it's still within our code of ethics to do the right thing. So, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, and most of um, I know for doctors, um, they can bill extended time, but the majority of our codes are mm-hmm. not timed. So it wouldn't apply, but Hey, there's, there's room for growth there. I might take you up on getting on some board later on. (laughs) Oh, I'm I'm dead serious. It does, but it's, it's volunteers. I mean, yes, I know money moves the world, but at the same time, it is volunteers and advocates that have seen the world through a different lens that can, I, as my dad would say, in one breath, we can gripe about a problem. And that's the G-rated version of what my dad would say. <laughs> but in the next breath, yeah, put your big girl britches on and then we go and work to advocate and fix it. And But right now we have to get you through grad school. So hurry up and get through grad school so we can pull you in on all the fun projects. <laughs> okay. So after, after briefing, what would you... What are the steps that we should be doing to do better? Um, well, along with the briefing and telling uh, the interpreter what's being assessed, they also need background information on the child, their parents. Um, are they involved in the session or not? Um, are there any specific um, 
ideologies. Maybe an interpreter is trained and they're certified, but they have not done anything GI related in a long time. So if they know ahead of time, they might, you know, touch up on their terminology um, and they're prepared for you. Um, um, I will. I, I royally failed one time with an interpreter and I was trying to describe eosinophilic esophagitis. And she was like, I don't know that one. And like, I, I mean, I had to pull out my phone and we, we Googled together. But I mean, if I had, if we had done a pre-brief, we could have had that discussion. So yeah. Um, and then there's intervention. Intervention is tricky. And, and that's something that I'm still trying to learn myself. Um, with early intervention, I see the importance of having the interpreter at every session. Otherwise, how else do you take, you know, home environment, home language, if it's not in their language? But as you, as they get older, you know, they, you start introducing English. Um, and that's something that I'm still trying to figure out myself. Should an interpreter be at every session? Should the language be English or Spanish? Um, but if you do need an interpreter for your intervention sessions, they also need to know what targets you're addressing. Again, is it what they say or how they say it? And what level of support you need from them? Do you want them to repeat to repeat, I'm sorry, to interpret every single thing that the child is saying. Or um, a lot of the times, just with language intervention, you wait, you give them time, you don't repeat, um, you give the child time to respond. So those are the things that, the, that you would know as a speech language pathologist, but that the interpreter might not know um, to do. So it's important to... Let them know those things. Those little subtle differences, yes. Okay. So put this, let's put this together in some case studies. I mean, like HIPAA compliant case studies, but like make this real for us. Like what what when you think back on the patients that you've collaborated in their care within the framework of early intervention, what sessions were like, oh my gosh. They did a phenomenal job here, here, and here. And then sessions when you walked away and you were like, we have room for improvement. <laughs> I've been in some situations where let's start with bad and then with good. Um, <laughs> where providers made a lot of assumptions and I heard a lot of stereotypes and as an interpreter, it's I'm in a weird position because I'm trying to interpret everything that you hear. But I heard some pretty offensive stuff. And it's, I have to say it, where I would just see kind of like people's faces. And, and it came from, you know, listening to stereotypes and sprouting them back out. Um, and making assumptions on, you know, cultural um, aspects. Um, so those those sessions, I've unfortunately been through a few where I'm just kind of like, uh. can you report that? Can you decline to collaborate? Like, what are your what are the rights of the interpreter if they hear that? Because like I threatened due process once at a school district. I'm not going to lie. I was at an IEP meeting and I listened to the teachers blatantly talking ugly about the child and they had no idea the mom understood what they were saying. And when we got done, I, um, cause I asked her, I was like, can I say something? And she's like, just let me leave first and then talk to them. And I was like, absolutely. I mean, I lost my professional cool. You can report, but I, and this is just me personally, I think you will be of most benefit if you educate to the provider. Most people are open say, Hey, I find that most people f hear that and are offended by it. 
and can see your body language. They can see the fa the faces that they're making. So I think educating is important because what is common sense to you and I may not be to other people. And it's a learning experience for everybody. And of course, if it keeps going on and use your judgment, if it's affecting someone in a way, it's, it's for me, it's not something that I would decline to do. And this is a personal um, choice because otherwise who else is there for these families? Then they'll be alone with this provider. Oh, your heart. Yep. Okay. Well, then tell us some good case studies, like some really, like, this was phenomenal. I saw this. Um, one, I love when I get a phone call from a clinic who maybe just heard my name or just happened to hear about me and says, hey, I have this patient that um, speaks Spanish and I started to do the assessment, but I realized I shouldn't be doing it because they are Spanish speaking or they're bilingual and I need you. I That makes my heart skip a beat because they're doing the right thing where a lot of providers won't. They'll just complete it, and that's that. Um, uh, recently, there was a, a patient who the provider did their language assessment, set up their goals. This child was not um, speaking. It's very, very limited. It had very limited sounds. And something in her heart told her that there was more going on. And she knew that this child was bilingual. So she decided to record the session. And she said, I really need your input because something's telling me that there's more. And I don't want to just do language therapy when, you know, maybe she's not understanding my English. She just wasn't sure. As soon as I saw the video, I recognized the child. And I said, nope, if you have any language goals for this child, they are not correct just based on our history. But if I didn't know the child, um, so she went back and did a, an assessment and it was motor speech problems. So no amount of language therapy would have done anything for this and and if you know it took reaching out to me as an interpreter to recognize that because um she was understanding everything in in Spanish and what she was saying trying to say she couldn't say it in either language did they pull in an AAC um I think that's when I last saw that child, that's what they were working towards. Um, okay. So can you give me your thoughts? Have you ever worked with AAC? Because like, I like, I love LAMP. Like I'm, I'm totally biased. Talk to me technologies and PRC. I love you. But like, I love LAMP because it has, um, it has the same language and I can go from English to Spanish, but I mean, I don't, I speak English and bad English. I learned a little bit of sign language, but honest to goodness, they taught me the sign for ball and I was taught this was the sign for ball. This is the sign for vagina. If you flip your hands right side up, it's ball. So for legit the first eight years of my career, I taught everybody I want to play with vaginas instead of balls. And like they want to... One of my girlfriends who is an ASL interpreter was like, okay, you got to stop. <laughs> she fixed that. Thank the Lord she did. So folks, if you do sign language, you might want to make sure that you're working with a certified ASL interpreter <laughs> to make sure it's the right signs, subtle variations. But like, how how does that work? 
like with respect to pulling in AAC and making sure that that is done um, appropriately? What recommendations do you have there? Those are the questions that I'm asking myself. I'm actually just starting my AAC course, but I have had um, some opportunities to learn very basic things about, you know, just dipping my toes in the water regarding AAC. And those are the questions that I have been asking. I have an amazing professor that I really look up to, Dr. Olenek, and AAC is her jam. It's her passion. Um, And I have asked, you know, uh, with AAC, you want to be able to allow someone to communicate, but that gets me thinking about how I communicate. Outside in the world, I communicate in English and I use, you know, professional language, but in my home, it's Spanglish. My sentences vary. It's not just Spanish. It's not just English. It's truly Spanglish. That's how I communicate with, you know, my family, my kids. And that gets, you know, my gears going. How does that work with an AAC device? Um, And just with limited knowledge, I know that that's just, um, we have to find a way to be able to program that. I'm trying to um, learn programs because what I have found, most of them are either in English or in Spanish. Um, and you can flip between them back and forth, but I'm trying to learn about, you know, is there a way to integrate one where it's both languages? Because that's how people that are bilingual or just using me as an example, if I, was to be in need of an AAC device, I would communicate in both. And I don't usually have to, you know, take off my Spanish ear and put on my English ear. It doesn't happen that way. That was the most beautiful analogy. Also, I like how you did like a Q-tip twist when you did that. (laughs) I was thinking Mr. Potato Head. (laughs) Got it. Yes. Uh. No, but that's something for us to think about because that's not – I took AAC a lifetime ago as a grad student, and that was when, like, high-tech devices were just starting to get, like, integrated into AAC. I mean, I learned all the things about picture communication systems. Like, let's be real. Like, things have changed. Um, And I am – I do know that there's programs now – where we just hit the point in some of these programs that within the last couple of years, the iconography is not stiff little white cartoon characters. I mean, they're now having like differences in colors and in um, uh, uh, sexual orientation identifications, right? Like how we identify it as an individual. Um, and they're just starting to have more options and accents or voices that people can select from. Um, I mean, this is, But these are the conversations that can propel that forward, right? Like having those heartfelt where we sit down at a table and we learn from one another. And it takes, um, and this is a very important issue, it takes diversifying the field to bring about those questions so we can get those answers. Because unless there's people like me thinking like me, then we wouldn't, you know, those questions wouldn't come up. You could say that again for the people in the back of the room that need to hear it louder. (laughs) Okay. So on that note, you're a member of the Hispanic caucus. Okay. Folks, did you know there's different caucuses within ASHA? Let's just like start there. So can I don't know anything about the Hispanic caucus. I mean, in truth, um, Dr. Raquel Garcia just um, uh, introduced me to the, um, the one of the um, uh, presidents or the directors of the Hispanic caucus because I have this dream of interviewing 
uh, an individual from all the different caucuses so that we can learn more and hold more conversations. So folks, stay tuned. I'm planning for that for like sometime after the first of next year. But what what is covered in the Hispanic caucus? Like what is its mission? Do you know? Talk to me. So the mission is what we just talked about to address issues of diversity that are so clear um, in our field. We want to increase resources, research uh, for professionals in speech and audiology. Um, There's a lot of support that's needed. Um, Just we know in general there's privilege, like you said, just from having white skin. And that trickles on all the way through. And I, I, using myself as an example, there's things that I faced. Um, and it's not, it doesn't have to be something tragic, something, you know, um, traumatic to get that affects you. But it's little things like applying to college, graduate school. I had, I had heard of college. That's the dream, you know, get good grades, go to college. I didn't know what graduate school was. Um, I didn't know what SLP was until five years ago. And I attribute that to my culture, my upbringing, or the lack of resources that I had growing up. So um, that's what the caucus is there for. It's It wants to provide a roadmap and give resources to people like me. Um, people that are needed in our field to diversify it and, you know, to help those who need it. So then I've also put the onus back on state associations. As a state association, it is on that group of individuals to ensure, yes, the longevity and advocacy initiatives of the state association, but the longevity is the future. You're only a state association as long as you have membership, but embedded within that, you have to reach out to, yes, currently enrolled students, but you have to think bigger and you have to think broader and you have to go into communities where they may not have heard of our profession and that it's there. It's in those moments where we can... um, as a educated white female from a family who were educated white adults and granted, I mean, my half of my, my family was bootleggers. They worked cornfields. They were first generation college educated. Right. But that had privilege. And with that privilege, I am uniquely equipped to know which, um, Uh, organizations to reach out to in my state to be able to open those doors, to be able to go into high schools where they have maybe never heard of a speech pathologist or encountered, but like it takes, it takes allies that, and, and that's what we can do. We can be allies to elevate, um, voices and give individuals and entities platforms to, reach out and grow the diversity in our field because good Lord Almighty, we need it. And we need to understand better how to collaborate. So huzzah for that too. I want to, in spirit of this, tell you uh, a story on how I got to grad school. I have a total and I have them saved and my plan is to print them and put them up. But I have nine grad school rejection letters. What? Nine. Oh, yes. honey. And it was number 10. Yes. This is how my, my, you know, being a minority, being a first generation Mexican-American affected me. When I first went to college, I didn't know the simplest thing like dropping a class. So when I needed to drop a class, I just didn't go. What happened? I got a couple Fs. 
that stayed on my transcript and that followed me all the way through to where I had a low GPA and nobody would accept me, even though my most recent, you know, grades were really good. Those Fs that I got years ago when I had no idea what I was doing because I had no help. My parents couldn't help me. They didn't go to school. You know, I had to figure it out on my own and I just, it's hard. And um, that followed me all the way through and I'm pretty sure my GPA was reason why, you know, I had those rejections. Um, Luckily, I got a school that saw beyond that, saw like my most recent work and looked at other things. And that's one of those things that in the field, I think we need. We need to look at a person more holistically and look beyond grades and standardization. Um, And those standard tests. Yeah. And when when I meet colleagues, when I meet classmates that had similar upbringings, we all face the same issues. And so that's, those are the, my experiences are the reason why I'm in the Hispanic caucus, because I want to share those struggles and I want to help uh, someone like me avoid those struggles or at least help them, help pull them out from struggling like I did. We need to hurry up, get you graduated, get your C's, and vote you in for a future ASHA president. So I claim, what year is it now? 2022. I claim ASHA 20, let's go with 37 um, for President Inez because, man, I wholeheartedly am in awe of you. Thank you. There's a reason there's a box of tissues like always right there. <laughs> That's what my, my, whenever we get tearful, my dad's like, your Irish eyes, they're always leaking. And I'm like, well, that came through you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. So in, if somebody has a question, if somebody is listening and wants to reach out, are you, do you have an email address that they could reach out to you from? It's Inez, I-N-E-Z dot C-M-I at gmail.com. If anybody has any extra love money lying around or they want to make a donation or they want to support an organization or an entity, do you have one that you'd like to give a shout out to? Uh, Number one is the Hispanic Caucus. Like I said, we help students. Um, We provide scholarships to undergrad, graduate, PhD students. And the award money is always based on what is donated. So um, the website HispanicCaucusAsha.org has a donate button. And number two is Feeding Matters. I also volunteer for Feeding Matters. Um, I am currently working on getting all the resources um, translated into Spanish Um, It's a project that I'm working with Alex Fisher to further help, you know, Hispanic and Spanish speaking families because Feeding Matters is already amazing. Um, So I'm I'm so excited and, you know, they can always use extra funds, extra resources. Oh, my stars. Well, um, woman, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your time and your talents and how giving and generous you are with both. Um, you are making our world um, for clinicians and patients and caregivers better. So thank you. Folks, um, as we head into um, the crazy hustle bustle of this season, um, please, 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 if you have a little extra love money, end of year, um, uh donation or tithe, however you want to call it, um, check out Hispanic Caucus and Always Feeding Matters. Um, Inez, thank you. Thank you. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, 
education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.